Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. This week on the podcast, reporters Riley Snyder and Jackie Valley talk about their story on the businesses in the state slowly reopening after the COVID-19 shutdown. After that, I talk with reporter Daniel Rothberg about his story on the Warren Act and mass layoffs. At the end of the show, reporters Megan Messerly and editor John Ralston face off in a debate about the merits of emojis. But before we move on, here's a quick update on where things stand this week regarding the coronavirus. As of recording this podcast on Friday, May 15th, confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Nevada exceed 6,600 and 339 people have died statewide. Those numbers will likely have increased by the time you hear this. But as the state has rapidly expanded testing infrastructure and widened the scope of testing requirements, the percentage of tests coming back positive has begun to dip. On Wednesday, it dropped below 10% for the first time in nearly six weeks. It's an encouraging sign as the state's economy slowly looks to reopen. Retail outlets were allowed to reopen over the weekend, and even businesses that are still shuttered by the governor's lockdown order are getting ready to do the same. That includes the state's casinos, which are looking to rapidly implement new technology and social distancing barriers that will allow a semblance of the Las Vegas Strip's old self. But even as people look ahead at a return to normal, the economic fallout of the coronavirus remains staggering. Initial unemployment claims filed during the last 10 weeks now total more than 443,000, almost 30% of the state's workforce. And amid the unemployment crisis, there may also soon be a reckoning for cash-strapped state and local governments that have been starved of revenue for weeks. The legislature's interim finance committee declared a fiscal emergency Wednesday, a move that will allow the state to tap about $400 million in rainy day funds. But it will fall far short of the expected budget hole. Earlier this week, Governor Sisolak said the budget shortfall could comprise more than $900 million, with an even deeper deficit expected in 2021. For more on the coronavirus outbreak, including a detailed live blog with all the latest updates, head to thenevadaindependent.com. And now on to reporters Jackie Valley and Riley Snyder talking about their story on the state and businesses reopening. I'm reporter Riley Snyder, and I'm joined today with my colleague Jackie Valley, uh, who worked on me with a story that published earlier this week about Nevada's first weekend of reopening. Governor Sisolak announced last week that the state's scheduled reopening date because of the coronavirus shutdown would be moved up to Saturday. Jackie, can you uh, talk a little bit about some of the individuals you spoke with, people who, some of whom were uh, concerned to go out, um, given the still active nature of the virus and some who were just kind of chomping at the bit to get out and go to restaurants and go to to some of the stores. Sure, Riley. Um, It was really interesting, actually, because I put out a query on social media to see who wanted to chat about the decision. Do I stay in or do I go out? And immediately got flooded with dozens of responses. Um, Some people just quickly wrote, staying in, staying in, not leaving. Um, But then I got a lot of more nuanced answers and ended up talking to a few people on the phone as well. Um, So as you would expect, um, one gentleman I talked to, he's 71 years old. Uh, He has only left to go to the grocery store, Home Depot for gardening supplies, Costco for his prescription medication, and the occasional takeout dinner. And he said that, you know, he wasn't willing to do anything beyond that at this point um, because of his age and he feels like he's in that higher risk pool. On the other end of the spectrum, I talked to a man who lives in Las Vegas. He's in his mid-40s. 
Um, and, and he had a real interesting perspective, I thought, because he unfortunately had a brother who um, passed away from suicide years earlier. And so that's informed his outlook on life quite a bit. And, you know, while he said he doesn't want to be reckless, he thinks it's good for everyone's mental health to be out and about a little bit. So he and his wife had gone to a total wine and more store. Uh, he went through a drive through sports book in downtown Las Vegas, and then they went out to eat at a, an off strip restaurant. And from what he observed at the restaurant, he said everything was spaced very well. He never came within 10 feet of another patron. Um, all the servers and wait staff had gloves and masks. So from his perspective, it was a safe operation. And he said just doing those few things over the weekend felt like, you know, Christmas shopping, just the sudden liberation. And then somewhere in the middle, another gentleman I talked to, um, he has a wife and a few kids and he had gone out to get takeout um, and he agreed that businesses should be reopening um, as long as people are doing it responsibly. But he is one of the people who has an underlying medical condition that make it riskier for him. So he's also in that group that isn't quite willing to do much more beyond, you know, the occasional takeout type situation. Yeah, and I, I'm just curious, Jackie, um, there's uh, oftentimes as reporters, we'll put out a call for, you know, if this has happened to you, please contact us. And it seemed like this one that you did for this weekend reopening got a lot of attention and a lot of people who had a lot of passionate views. What about it do you think, um, you know, obviously coronavirus and COVID-19 has been the biggest thing in the world for the last two months, but what, why do you think that so many people had such a passionate response and wanted to talk about how they either went out or didn't go out this weekend? I think because it's the the great internal dilemma that everyone's facing right now. One of the people I spoke to even said he understands that whatever decision you make can lead to judgment. And so there's sort of this peer pressure situation right now where on one side, you know, people are saying no one should be going, everyone should be staying in to help others. Um, and then you have other factions of society who are saying, no, we need to get the economy restarted and otherwise we're going to face massive uh job losses going forward. So I think just the, the magnitude of the decision and the fact that it's weighing on everyone right now, however many weeks into this we are, um, really just generated a lot of uh, conversation. And if I was looking at my Twitter feed, it had like some 40 responses within just a few hours and people were responding to each other's take on the issue. So I, I probably should have done a poll too to see what people said, but it was mostly anecdotal. Yeah, it's like before you would just go to a restaurant, the hardest question was, what restaurant do I go to? And now there's this whole question of, can I wear a mask? Is it like uh, have enough safety features? And this would probably be a good opportunity to talk about um, some of the requirements that were put in place for the business reopenings. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about this or I can talk about it, Jackie, but for restaurants specifically, what were some of the things that the state put in place to try and um, ensure social distancing to kind of mitigate any further spread of COVID-19? Well, I think the, the biggest, most visual difference is when you walk into these restaurants, um, they've either pulled out tables to limit it, limit the capacity to 50%, um, or they've you know put tape or somehow marked tables that can't be in use so that they meet those social distancing guidelines. Um, and of course, the employees have to wear masks and gloves, so there's things like that as well. Um, I'll tell you from a personal note, I went to get takeout at a restaurant the other night and um, when I arrived, I noticed that they had uh, all the menus were paper, could easily thrown away, and you know they had an operation so that people could kind of go in very easily and get takeout without having to go 
very far into the restaurant itself. Um, but there were, you know, a handful of people, and this was around lunchtime, dining in one of the, the in-dining areas. Yeah, and the uh, enforcement is something that I reported on uh, more specifically for this story. And it seems like most uh, local governments and municipalities are kind of doing more of a public education approach as opposed to, you know, cracking down and assessing a fine if a table is, you know, only five feet away as opposed to being six feet or even further. Um, and whether it was in Southern Nevada or Northern Nevada, I think most people are trying to just help businesses adjust to that. And now, uh, Part of our story also involved interviewing uh, multiple business owners. Some of our interns were able to talk with them. Can you kind of describe how um, some of these individuals, I think we talked to a cannabis store owner, a massage parlor, I believe, or a nail salon, um, how, how they're adjusting and how they specifically in their line of work have to kind of deal with this new reality. On the, the business side of it, I think the biggest takeaway was that they weren't expecting the governor to move up. The reopening deadline. So they really had, you know, less than 48 hours to prepare to reopen. And so for restaurants, that posed some hurdles in terms of, okay, are we stocked with enough food and booze? Um, how do we get all the tables lined up? So I think there was like a little bit, it was a little bittersweet because it was rushed for them and they had a lot to get done. But on the other hand, they were just grateful to be given the opportunity uh, to reopen. Um, and that's why I think we might have a better idea of how the community is responding and what they're deciding after this coming weekend when some of these businesses can do a little bit more advertising to say that they're reopened, get their inventory restocked. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how things change even in the coming days as people are more aware. Yeah, there's so many factors and like trying to figure out demand feels impossible. And then on the entire other side of this, even if businesses are opening, like almost a third of the state is out of work because mm -hmm. everything's shut down for two months. So I don't know how much demand there's going to be for a lot of these things. Um, so it's definitely something that we'll be watching and continuing to report. Anything else you want to add, Jackie? No, I mean, I just think this story is far from over. And I mean, there's still a lot of businesses that just can't reopen because they're not, you know, restaurants or like direct consumer retail. Um, so I think we have to keep those in mind too, because it's not become a, a new normal for them yet either. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on uh, the podcast with me. The Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act of 1998, often just called the WARN Act, is a federal law that requires employers to send out notice in the event of mass layoffs. Those notices usually come as one-off events, as production plants close or facilities go out of business. But amid an unprecedented economic crisis triggered by the coronavirus pandemic, those letters are providing a window into some of the ways in which the virus has devastated the labor market. Daniel Rothberg is a reporter with the Nevada Independent, and he reviewed more than 100 WARN Act letters. And he joins me now to break down what he found. Daniel, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jacob. Let's start with digging into the WARN Act as a bit of a baseline. Can you explain the specifics of the kind of situation that would require a company to send out one of these mass layoff notices? So in general, the WARN Act is a federal law that requires um, mainly larger companies to give notice to policymakers, to uh, local elected officials, state labor officials, and employees, most importantly, of impending uh, plant closures um, or, uh, or uh, mass layoffs or furloughs that affect a 
sizable amount of their workforce. There are different triggers in the law of what sizable means, but in general, these companies are required to give uh, at least 60 calendar days of notice before a mass layoff. Um, if they don't do that, uh, and the WARN Act applies to them, again, you know, larger company, we're talking about larger companies here, they could be held liable in a court uh, for paying employee salaries and benefits for those 60 days. Um, what's happening right now during the pandemic is the business closures happen so rapidly and at such a large scale, you're seeing these huge uh, mass layoffs, um, but companies giving their sort of war notification weeks after uh, they're required to theoretically by law. And there are some exceptions there, which I'm sure we'll get to. Okay, well, let's start then with some of the industries that are sending out these notices. I mean, do they paint a picture of uh, a lot of it we've already seen, you know, obviously, casinos are closed, airports aren't doing so well. Um, but what industries are most impacted based on what you found in these these notices that have been submitted so far? I think the thing that that is inescapable in looking at these notices are uh, the large-scale impacts of hospitality industry closures in Nevada. Um, you know, I, I actually have to say that this was a pretty uh, depressing assignment. It was it was brutal going through uh, these notifications, and um, you look at it in Las Vegas where you have these sort of mega resorts. You you can see. Um, from the Warren Act data, which is reported by property, not by company. So, so for example, um, the closure of Caesar's Palace affects 6,000 employees, more than 6,000 employees, and same with the Bellagio. Um, those are two examples I used in my story. And, and for some reason, even though those, those numbers are actually smaller than the company-wide numbers that we've been seeing for weeks, um, it, it really, I think, struck a chord with me to see those numbers. Uh, the other thing in the notices is that they actually, in many cases, um, explicitly lay out the job titles of every person who um, is affected by the notice layoffs or furloughs. Um, the, you know, the, the other thing I noticed um, is that in addition to sort of these mass layoffs as a result of hotel and casino closures is a lot of suppliers are also being affected um, across the industry. Advertising companies, uh, companies, uh, restaurants inside casinos, just, just because, uh, you know, in addition to casinos closing, there are a lot of restaurants and shops that are inside a casino. Um, many of them do this sort of large-scale business that the Warren Act is looking at. Um, you know, they're, they're not always uh, sort of small-scale restaurants, and, and some of them operate 24-7 uh, um, or, or close to that um, in Las Vegas. Uh and then, you know, and then there are there are companies uh, which I don't get into quite as much in the story, but um, that, that are also affected by uh, the closures that are not not related to the hospitality industry. Um, a dental a dental company, for example, filed a warn act notice. Uh, companies that you wouldn't 
think of as being kind of directly affected by the hospitality industry, but really are, or the tourism industry, you know, rental car companies and, and things like that, um, they've all filed these notifications with state officials. And so when we look at the the sort of totality of the notices that have been filed so far, are we seeing most of them concentrated in that hospitality industry? Or can we uh, sort of paint a picture, too, of the industries that aren't hospitality that have also been affected by this? I would say that they are mostly related to the hospitality industry just because of the nature of uh, the, the closure order in Nevada and um, the economy in the state. Um, you know, um, hospitality really, I would say, accounts for sort of the large-scale companies. Uh, manufacturing plants uh, in in Nevada have been allowed to stay open and are not not in as much risk of these sort of month-long layoffs and furloughs as a hospitality industry. So you don't see as many from manufacturing, and uh, that's true of mining i didn't see any from mining these industries that are are still sort of staying open and are not as affected but also employ huge numbers at, at one or two specific sites hmm. and so i guess beyond uh the notices that have been filed i'm curious about things that haven't been filed right at the top uh, you mentioned um that a lot of these companies are waiting weeks beyond the normal deadline periods to, to file these notices um what does enforcement look like for this act and how does that affect like the employees who may still be waiting in the balance here yeah that's a good question so um, the WARN Act turns out to be uh, fairly complicated, and there are all sorts of exceptions and kind of different timing techniques. I don't know if techniques is quite the right word, but different timing sort of scenarios that companies think about when filing these notices. So um, I guess I'll start with um, the companies that have filed and then talk about the companies that maybe haven't filed. but. Um, you know, some, many of the companies, I would say most of the companies that cited COVID-19 in their letters also cited an, an exception to the notification, 60-day notification requirement in the WARN Act. And that exception allows companies to, uh, to not give that sort of uh, two-month notification in cases where there are unforeseeable, quote, unforeseeable business circumstances. That is a phrase that, you know, like all things might get litigated down the line, but they're, you know, presenting an argument that COVID-19 meets meets that criteria. Um, another thing that's worth mentioning is that under the WARN Act, in many cases, temporary furloughs that don't last more than six months are not considered an employment loss under the WARN Act. However, companies that don't file notification and then have to extend furloughs beyond six months can be liable. So many companies might be filing notices as sort of a precautionary measure, even though their actions are temporary. And many of the notices do in fact state that the layoffs or furloughs are temporary. So to get to the companies, to the question you asked, which is about the companies that have not filed, um, 
enforcement is is then the Department of Labor put out guidance and they said this very explicitly. Um, they they said that enforcement really is done through the courts. The Department of Labor can provide guidance, but enforcement happens when sort of a private party sues a company or an employee employee um, alleges that they've uh, that they, they have not received proper notice, um, and they could file a lawsuit, and that would be adjudicated in court. That's sort of how this law is enforced. Um, you know, the uh, it was it was somewhat. I don't know if surprising is the right word, but it was somewhat uh, striking that the Department of Labor so specifically said that in their guidance that this was this these um, p potential infractions or um, would be adjudicated through court, not through not through sort of an administrative process. We'll have to leave it there. Daniel Rothberg normally covers the environment for the Nevada Independent, but sometimes he also covers the economy. You can read his story on the Warren Act, which published on the NevadaIndependent.com on Thursday. Daniel Rothberg, thank you for joining me. Thank you. All right, and so we're at the last segment of the podcast, and I am joined by reporter Megan Messerly. Hi, Megan. Hey. And editor John Ralston. Hey, John. Hey, Joey. And this has been a, uh, I don't know if it's a, this has been a debate since the beginning of time, or at least the beginning of the indie, which has there, was there time before the indie? We don't know. But, you know, emojis, John, we, we all know where you stand on them, and you're quite anti-emoji. And uh, I think the rest of the staff, uh, Megan, I think is maybe the, the strongest voice in this argument is pro emoji, but um, if you're on our Slack channel, you'll notice that all of our names have a little emoji next to them. Mine has a little microphone. I think Megan's has a bow. Oh. Michelle's has a cat. <laughs> Riley's has a little devil next to it. <laughs> so what, is, what does mine have, Joey? What Nothing. emoji is next to me? That's exactly right. Let's be clear <laughs> <with> that. <laughs> and so I figured we would have you and Megan debate the, uh, the merits of emojis. Well, I'll just say for me, this is like me trying to debate against the merits of early voting. No one listens to me, right? Everyone's going to do it anyhow. I have already lost this battle. I'm like, stand, you know, I'm just like the last man standing on the whole debate. But I'll just, I'll just say a couple of quick things, and then I'll let Megan jump in. First of all, compelling argument. What's that? I have a pretty compelling argument. I have no, I have, I have no doubt, and, and you don't need the emojis to tell it, which is my main point, <laughs> which is that uh, emojis say to me unseriousness. That's just not the mark of a serious human being to, to, to use emojis. Are you saying and, I'm an unserious human being? Um, what I'm about to say is the shameless flattery part is coming now to try to to try to contain this argument, which is that it's a, Megan is one of the smartest people I know, Joey, uh, smartest, well-read, knowledgeable people I know, and she's like an emoji lover. It doesn't <laughs> go together. I do not understand it. it doesn't compute. It makes no sense. No, yeah, it doesn't compute. It makes no sense to me. It's 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 just a a, a sign of an unserious person to use emojis. Uh, and, and that's, I don't think I've ever been able to get beyond that. I, I, before Megan has her argument, I would like to say, since you say that, that using emojis is a sign of not seriousness, 
That's You're the right. least serious person I know, John. <laughs> but I am. That's funny. It's because you know, you know, I like to laugh and I like to make jokes, and you guys all know that. Whether it's on Slack or on Twitter or anywhere in my life, I think I have a good sense of humor. I just I don't find I don't find that emojis add humor to the situation. <laughs> okay, can I make my argument? Yes. Okay. So back at the beginning of I don't know internet culture, texting culture, like when I was a, a child, um, because, you know, I was, I, we always talk about on staff how young I am. But back in the day, um, when I was just starting to be a user of the internet, I would type out messages with full grammar, proper punctuation. Um, and the problem was people always thought I was angry at them because I would use proper punctuation. I would end all of my, like, you can punctuate between sentences, but I would use a period at the end of the text message, right? And it finally was in my high school years that someone approached me and said, why are you so serious all the time? Why are you so angry in all of your messages? They're all so serious because you use a period at the end of them. So I made a conscious decision at that point to never use periods at the end of my sentences. And since then, people think I am a lot more pleasant of a person to interact with. So my first argument for emojis is that it's able to convey a levity of tone that you would have in a normal speech pattern that you can't have when you're writing online. If you're too formal, if you're speaking in full sentences with periods, you can't convey the proper emotion, right? It seems overly formal, overly serious, and not sort of the way we communicate as human beings. The second reason why I think emojis are useful, and this comes up a lot, as John, I'm sure, will acknowledge, but how often do you tell us, nobody gets me, nobody understands me? You tell us that all the time. And if you were to use emoji, we would understand the proper tone of your messages, and then we would understand you perfectly. Like a well-placed, and so this is the thing that I love about emojis, a well-placed emoji, a well-chosen emoji adds so much to it, right? So a little, a little upside down smiley face, right? Just like a little bit of note of playfulness on top of it. Um, you know, the devil emoji, the smiling devil emoji is a bit of impishness. So if you're being uh, playful and kind of facetious, it adds that tone. And if you were just to write the sentence, people might miss your tone because it's very confusing when you're communicating online to be able to have a sense of the tone of messages. So that is my argument in favor of emojis, is that it adds a le level of depth to online communication that we have when we're talking in person, but that we miss when we're talking online. So Joey, if I may rebut that, because <laughs> Megan has inadvertently made my case and she doesn't even know it, and I'll tell you <laughs> It's because of her lack of facility with words, apparently, and her inability to show humor and impishness or devilishness through her words that she must resort to this symbol. Uh, so that, that is the problem. It's the, it's the devolution of, of, of a conversation because you can't express in words what is so easy with one of your cute emojis. Uh, you're, you have a great vocabulary. You have, you, you, have, you have many words to use, but it's easier to put uh, an emoji sticking a tongue out at me when I've mentioned <laughs> your latest 6,000 word story or something, as opposed to giving me a good comeback. I, I acknowledge that, but for me, I don't think it's an either or argument, right? You can have clever comebacks and you can also have emoji and there's a time and a place for each of those. I don't think saying that using emoji means you can never have a clever comeback. It's just a different kind of comeback. Um, and I think there's appropriate situations for each. And I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. I think that a lot of people will use LOL or haha at the end of their messages to like convey a t like a lighter tone. 
I know that I am a serial user of just ha- just a nervous laughter at the end of every text message I send. I mean, I am a nervous laugher, I guess, in person too, but um, I feel like, you know, those are so overused. At some point, you need to replace it with something that's not LOL. Um, you know, you, you have these emojis because they do convey maybe a different, you know, it's variety because you get so tired of reading haha. Or in John's case, it's usually H-A period, ha. Just ha. a single ha. <laughs> That fits, though, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I, I think the, the issue for me, and to some of this, I, I, I acknowledge some of this is stubbornness or just being pedantic. But like, for instance, you mentioned LOL. I will never use LOL. I'll start using every emoji in the book before I use LOL. I don't know, and I don't know why. It just grates on me every time, still, all these years later, that someone uses LOL. And... I, I will. I would admit here, since I know this is not going to be actually broadcast anywhere, <laughs> that, that I do get a kick now uh, out of one of my favorite games with myself is to try to guess after I've needled Megan about something which emoji she's going to come back at me with on Slack, and 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 I've been pretty good now at guessing which one it is, but she does change it up once in a while. Yeah, but see, this is, so you've gotten used, and this is what I think is really intriguing about emojis. The more you talk with a person, you understand how people use emoji, and people use emoji really differently. Like, different emoji mean different things to different people, and it's always really interesting when I get to know someone new, a friend who I haven't texted with before, you understand the way they use emoji, and it sort of becomes this different way you communicate with a person as opposed to a way you communicate with someone else. I think it adds a different layer to it. I was going to say something about LOL as well. When LOL first arrived, like back in the days, again, of like internet chat and T9 phones. Yeah, and T9 Word. Gosh, that was a long time ago. Um, LOL, I I never used it, right? I never used any of the acronyms. I I love spelling everything out. But I think a well-placed LOL, again, adds a little bit of dimension to your conversation. So LOL, for me, if I ever use LOL, it's usually a sarcastic thing, like LOL. So funny. Ha ha. You know, it's not like a serious, like, oh, I'm actually laughing. Conversely, I also enjoy using LOL, 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 a lot of them in succession. <laughs> it's just like, this is ridiculous. This is hilarious. This is so silly. Um, so again, it's, I think it just shows the way that we evolve as human beings and how our speech patterns aren't a static thing, right? The way I write my articles, I'm not going to write an article in emoji. Uh, I would love to, but John would never let me. But I wouldn't do that, right? Because there's a different way I communicate when I am producing pieces than when I do when I'm talking to people casually over text message or over Slack. The only one of those things that I, I think it's the only one you guys would know better because you, you probably follow my uh, Slack habits and Twitter habits and writing habits better than I do that I, and you guys all know, I know this might shock some of the people listening and I can be very sarcastic, but um, I just think using TBH to be honest at the end of certain uh, sentences is just a great sarcastic way or <laughs> funny way to end a, a sentence. If you're, if you're trying to mock something or, 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 or just create a certain humor that I love. I think it's the only one I use though. And I don't know why. I don't think I'll ever get over the emoji thing. And I don't think I'll, I'm pretty sure I'll never get over LOL. I, I as I said, I think I'll get over a, a, a emoji before I get over LOL. I mean, I'll just never do LOL. <laughs> You'll never see that. All right. Well, I, I guess we'll leave it there. Um, as we all know, John's wrong about this. Uh, and you can tell him in the comment section or you can email us to tell us why John is so wrong. All right. Thanks for joining me, guys. All right. Thanks.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Riley Snyder, Jackie Valley, Daniel Rothberg, Megan Messerly, and John Ralston for being on the podcast this week. If you like the podcast, you can find more of it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our website has a nice new player if you click on Indie Matters on the sidebar. If you would like to support our reporting on everything Nevada politics, policy, business, education, and more, you can do so by clicking the Support Our Work button on the top of our site. We've also got a live blog on the coronavirus pandemic, so if you want minute-to-minute updates, you can also find that on our site. And of course, if you have comments, criticism, praise, or want to tell us what your favorite emoji is, you can email us at jacob at the nvindy.com or joey at the nvindy.com. People With Bodies does the music for the show, and they just came out with a new album that you can listen to on Spotify or Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>